Welcome to Nothing Never Happened. This is the March 2019 podcast. Uh, Today we have with us Ben Spate, who is the Director of Organizing for the Teamster Local 728 Union and a longtime community partner with the Department of Religious Studies at Agnes Scott College. He visited my Religion, Education, and Activism class on February 20th, 2019, and this is a good primer on union organizing and building movements uh, with grassroots. So take a listen to Ben. Uh, The podcast is in two parts. The first part, he's going to give an overview of union organizing and his own work in the state of Georgia. And in part two, uh, Ben is going to answer some questions for the class about organizing and uh, talk about how if we combine our forces, then we're stronger together. It's an honor to be here, so thanks for having me. Um, And everything I'm probably going to tell you is things you don't know about me. Um, So I'll reserve a lot of those. But I was impressed with all y'all's talents. I mean, it reminds me of the the cartoon Captain Planet. Remember, y'all ever seen that? When you put your rings together, our powers combine. Um, I mean, but but from Irish dancing to black belts to, you know, uh, scuba diving, we got a good mix of people here. So, and that's kind of the idea about unions is combining our forces. Because ultimately, uh, average working people don't have money, don't have capital, don't have the resources. We're not a billionaire like Howard Schultz that can say, I want to run for president. People take us seriously. Okay. Uh, so we have numbers, right? Um, and if you look around the world, if you have a perspective that's global and internationalist, then those numbers are pretty, uh, um, pretty enormous. We're talking about who is the 99%. Who are the people that give some of their body, mind, emotions even for pay? Well, that's like everybody, right? That's, that's our global economy. And that touches people in every strata in the world, from agricultural workers and domestic workers to those that work in the so-called service industry, which is such a uh, amalgamation of different types of craft and services, something that's often gendered labor, emotional, unpaid labor, domestic work, to truck driving, uh, to manufacturing. What we see, though, and uh, is that those people tend uh, not to have much of a say in our societies. Ironically, they create all the wealth in society. <laughs> so they're the ones that create, us collectively create all the resources in the world. I mean, we'll give Bezos and a few like entrepreneurial geniuses some uh, credit for their vision. Uh, You heard the the eulogies to Steve Jobs, you know, oh, Steve Jobs was a genius. Okay. Well, certainly there are exceptional individuals and we we should recognize that there are certain people that are just gifted and blessed with all kinds of extraordinary intellectual talent. All of those things are moot, though, if there's not people actualizing those visions, right? Um, and that's where workers come in. So uh, I'm here to tell you about my story a little bit and also just answer any questions about 
organizing in general. Uh, although I'm in a kind of a box called union organizing, I chose that box for a uh, particular reason as a young person. Um, and it's been something that's been immensely gratifying and immensely frustrating uh, at the same time. Um, uh, there's certainly many different professions that any of us could get into in this room. Um, labor unions weren't something that I was encouraged to get into as a young person. And it's not something that's really um, uh, an easy, easy job to get into. Okay. Um, so let me just step back and say that I was a um, sort of a punk rock teenager uh, in Noonan. Uh, I grew up in Noonan, Fayette County, uh, Fayetteville, Georgia. And I didn't really have much of a compass to understand what was going on in the world. Or I had a, a, a baseline of morality, which is don't bully people. Don't push people. If you're bigger, don't push the little people around. Okay. Um, and that sort of developed a little bit into curiosity for people that were looked different than me. Um, and so here in this almost like 95% school, I started a multicultural club and I had a few kids come, but most of the kids were like mocking me and stuff like that because it was just unusual. Why are you trying to start this? We did an underground zine in our high school, which was all got, you know, had kids contribute articles about what they were seeing in their own school system. And that was repressed by the local school administration, you know, told me I can't pass out my newsletter. So even in high school, I was starting to feel like maybe it's not just my purpose, but maybe our purpose is to try to challenge this very tough world that we're in where people feel isolated, people feel defeated, people feel like they don't have a voice. And um, I started working with the homeless at Peachtree and Pine, which is now shut down, uh, with a group called Food Not Bombs. Started volunteering with them. They're an anarchist kind of group making vegetable soup. All of that was great, but it was so service-oriented. I was doing, like, service for other people. And at that time, it wasn't really much in our uh, political discourse, but I was very much aware of my privilege as a straight American white male from the South. Okay, and I knew that going into certain spaces and trying to talk about injustice, I'm going to be viewed as, what's your agenda? You know, what are you about? So I knew I had to kind of learn the basics, learn the basics. And so rather than trying to um, uh, jump on to some other existing organization necessarily, um, I went to school in Valdosta, Georgia. There wasn't any much resources down there for anybody. Um, so I just started from scratch. I just started talking to campus workers. And I started, you know, uh, finding out what they were getting paid. And we had a meeting. Every, the most ambitious strategy starts with the first meeting. And the people that you want at that first meeting are those that are feeling it the most, those that are directly impacted. Um, my goal wasn't to organize a lot of students because I felt that the students weren't as directly impacted by the campus worker conditions. So I wanted campus workers to go. The first meeting, we had 100 workers show up because they'd never been asked to come to a meeting before where they were, where people were interested in learning from them. So you had like um, cafeteria workers, uh, maintenance workers, groundskeepers, all show up at the first meeting. And they were scared, scared, because nobody really wants to hear from the people, you know? They're not asked to give their opinions. Um, you know, in an academic environment, we're always asked, what do you think? Contribute, you know? In a workaday environment, it's you're here to do a job you're not asked to contribute um so that's what got me started it was uh 18 years ago 
So I've been doing this, I'm 37 now, and I've been doing this since, um, you know, 2000 or 2001. And um, uh, at that time, we didn't really feel like electoral politics to the Democratic Party was much of an avenue for change. Um, uh, I started kind of being aware of economic inequality when Clinton was very much in power. The World Trade Organization held a summit in Seattle in 1999 and labor unions and environmental organizations and many others said these trade policies are are pushing us to the brink of ecological uh, extinction even this is 18 years ago they're uh, undermining labor standards throughout the world you're forcing workers to compete against each other and that was really the warning signs of what we see now where the right-wing reactionary parties have said we ought to look out for our country and build walls or separate or stop immigration from these other countries, right? And those workers are the fault. They're driving down standards because they're willing to work for less money. At that time, I was learning about economics and said, well, instead of us being dragged down to their standards, why don't we raise standards for those workers? Why don't we make forming unions in Southeast Asia and in Mexico easier so they can demand higher pay, so there's less of this economic um, advantage and disadvantage between nation mar national markets. Well, they certainly do that with money. They take money from the Ukraine or from the United States or from China and they switch it around the world. They don't want to be taxed on it. But when it comes to people, they have all these barriers and regulations where they keep us um, from seeing our common interests. So all these different varying strains of politics and economy just maybe want to do something. And rather than like... Um, uh, go other routes, I decided like organizing, it was my thing. So um, I actually very early into that work, I ran into the, I heard about the Agnes Scott Living Wage Campaign and how it had been going on and like it was one of the rare uh, examples of people, I was looking for places in the South that people resisted. I was looking for places in the South that combined male, female, black, white, brown, you know, together in common coalitions. It wasn't that we can raise issues of racial and gender inequality by talking about our common uh, experiences, which is we work to survive, okay? And that was the origin for why I got into labor. So our organization now, we represent all the UPS workers throughout the state of Georgia. Um, our union uh, represents every UPS worker in the nation. That's 250,000 workers. Here in Georgia, we uh, do all the transportation for the movie and film industry. And um, I represent uh, sanitation workers and uh, milk and ice cream delivery drivers. So what I get to do is I get to take all these radical notions of how the economy needs to be reordered, and I have to put that in a very pragmatic sense. And I negotiate with these employers, with the group of the workers there with me, at a table similar to this, and we negotiate every three years their pay benefits and working conditions and that could include things like going above and beyond the law even if it's an entirely you know which you would think of as like this very macho environment male dominated sanitation work we make sure we have protections in there not just in accordance with the law around gender and, and, and sex we have to go beyond that to include sexual orientation in the workplace it's not against the law in Georgia to fire somebody for being LGBT do y'all know that? In fact, you can give them the most miserable job working conditions on purpose and tell them that's why, and it's still not against the law. You could harass them on the job every day 
and it's not against the law in Georgia. So having a union contract, we can supersede and go beyond the law. Okay. Um, and there's actually a video here on our Facebook page where um, we had to use the ultimate weapon. And what, what is the ultimate weapon for workers? What do workers have that the bosses can't operate without? So if you're, what, anybody? For labor and working. Yeah. So a strike, you know, and, and there's a lot of bad connotations with it because billionaires and others don't like them. <laughs> so their media uh, and others, uh, academic institutions and others will talk about how uh, futile strikes are. But strikes, the withholding of labor, whether it's a women's strike in West Africa against rape and, and sexual assault. I think it was in Liberia years ago, uh, where the women said, we're, we're not going to, to uh, engage in intimate relations until we have issues addressed uh, in our society. We're withdrawing from participating. We're not going to participate. Montgomery bus boycott, we're not going to ride your buses. Your buses are going to be empty. And that can only work. So on August 10th of this past year, a group of sanitation workers in Bankhead, the neighborhood on the west side of Atlanta, went on a 15-hour strike. And they serve as major um, private sector institutions, like just a little bitty in entity called the Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. They service that. This other little bitty outfit called the Piedmont Hospital System, they do that. Atlanta Public Schools. So when they stopped picking up that day, trash stacks up very quickly. And in August, it starts stinking very quickly. And so all these different customers started calling the company and saying, why are these workers not at work? And the company had explained to them that they were, had been breaking the law. They weren't negotiating with the workers. They tried to replace some of the workers. And, uh, and that was it. So all these employers said, you've got to settle with these workers. And so within 15 hours, we had a deal. And it was only possible because the workers had prepped themselves, understood what was at stake, democratically discussed it, voted to do that, you know, went through some escalating tactics before they did it to test their strength. But when they did it, they did it in a unified way. And we, we're talking about people who in many ways are disenfranchised from the political system. Now, many of our people are registered to vote, but they're not given the best options to who to vote for often. So many of them don't, these are people in many times, not disparaging them, but didn't go to college. They didn't probably didn't even finish high school. These are, these are working people that you want in our society to say, you can have a legitimate job and make ends meet, right? So uh, we had guys that were uh, just what you would say the typical redneck and the typical folks that live in West Atlanta coming together on the picket line and a hundred of them and through the process of them doing something that seems so massive, so historic, they literally, through the span of 15 hours, started to break down some of these thoughts they had about each other. They started to forge kind of a new kind of collective identity. And that can happen in a, such, a, such a short amount of time. We think of change as happening over these epics, you know, these long periods of time. In fact, people's experience can be crystallized or consciousness can be transformed within very small, short periods of time if 
it's done right, if it's done in a collective way. So um, those workers are the proudest Teamsters I've ever seen <laughs> because they kicked the ass of a multinational, global, multi-billion dollar corporation. And they know now that they have that power. Now, of course, they still have to go and do their jobs every day, but uh, in, in, in hauling waste is not a uh, glorious thing. But uh, we just featured in this Teamster magazine. I'll pass this around real quick. Actually, this was just published um, just a few days ago. But I'm going to stop uh, going on and on and answer some uh, questions or thoughts that you all may have about it. There is a video up on our Facebook if you wanted to watch that. Um, I'm happy to show you. But um, you know, the, the, we're living in a world now that is calling for young people to be organizers. And being an organizer means it's not about you. Being an organizer means you're behind the scenes. You're developing leaders amongst those that are experiencing these issues directly. You're not speaking for them. You're teaching them how to speak. Why do we do that? Well, um, as somebody that considers myself a socialist, I have for a long time, somebody that believes that that means expanding democracy radically into the economy. We need to have democratic processes, not just through very regimented, often undermined electoral processes that are influenced by outside <laughs> entities. We need to have big and small ways that we're, we're collectively governing. Y'all were talking about the SAS and other things like that. Here at Agnes Scott, there are means for students to collectively decide. However, as, you, as you've seen, probably, they're institutionally limited and restricted by those that don't want the students. Uh, if you heard the saying, don't let the inmates run the, uh, the, or the, uh, don't let them run the asylum, don't let them run the prison, there's this fear that the mass of people making collective decisions about themselves will be irrational or will lead to bad outcomes. So there's like an, a, a deep-seated belief within elites that democracy is dangerous. So when we, go into the, when we go to the workplace, you can ask your parents of your own experience. Whatever say or feedback that you may have is entirely restricted. There's no collective decision making. In places like Germany and other places that have had labor movements be successful, take some form of political power, you'll see um, in, in, in Scandinavia, other places where there's more of a collaborative way of governing around the economy, wage rates, industry standards, et cetera. We don't have that model in any way here. And that's where I'd like to see us develop into. And I think that there's more and more of a desire to see us do that. You know, um, we're at, we have some of the highest, un, uh, lowest unemployment we've had in decades. Why aren't wages going up? The magic hand of the market's supposed to force wages up when there's a shortage of supply. Well, every gain that we have in our society here and around the world has not been given through benevolence of elites. It's been given through demanded and through struggle and through people saying, you're going to give us this. Okay. Um, the immigrants' rights movement is an example. Uh, you, you're not going to not deport us because we've convinced you it's the wrong thing to do. You're not going to do it because we're not leaving, one. Two, your economy relies on our labor. Okay? Three, we're going to resist in every way we can. So it's not trying to plead and beg and ask for understanding. It's saying we're going to create a crisis that you cannot 
get around, ignore, or escape. Okay? And knowing that labor creates the resources, all the capital in the world, and knowing too that we have the cap, we have the ability, theoretically, to create a crisis to make them listen. That's why we believe that working people are the ultimate catalyst for broad social transformation that we need. So it's not like workers are just another constituency, it's that they are the central constituency that unites people around the world. Okay, so um, that's why I got into it and that's why I'm, I'm hap happy to do this. Um, I also don't think there's any other space that we have now, even though work is often very segregated by it has the, the, the racial division of labor is some of the origins of how white supremacy has been so successful in the South. You're a black female, you need to work over here. You're a white female, you work over here and pit people against each other. You're, you know, you're Latina, you're supposed to work in this kind of environment. Um, when workers are put in the same environment together, they developed a, uh, a consciousness that transcends their social identities in many ways. But collectively, they can help address the issues of the minorities within that by having a general principle of solidarity and equality. That's what comes out of the labor movement. We institute certain procedures in the workplace that eliminates things like discrimination. For instance, you come in, regardless of your background or how you look, there's a wage rate and wage increases that are there that you're going to get guaranteed. Okay. Um, Back in the 1930s and 40s, if you're a truck driver in Atlanta, Georgia, and we have this documented so we know it's a fact, if you're a black truck driver, uh, this is 1950, so you're coming out of World War II, fighting Nazis, and you're coming back to Georgia, and you're driving a truck, okay? Well, the rule was that if you were black, you were on a secondary seniority list. You know what seniority is? Seniority is the date you were hired. So that the longer you've been at a particular firm, you can get better and better jobs, okay? So they would put black drivers in the secondary list and the white drivers in another list. So if a black driver had been there 10 years and a white driver's been there 10 days, the white driver gets first dibs, okay? Because of our union, and this is before federal legislation, this is before state legislation, we imposed this through solidarity, by teaching empathy, by teaching who are your brothers, okay? Who are your sisters? The white drivers and the black drivers demanded one seniority list. And those white drivers knew that that would set some of them backwards. It wasn't without penalty. When you merge the seniority list, there's gonna be some white drivers that fall down. But it's the principle of solidarity. Like, even if it doesn't affect me today, I'm standing with you, sister, because it will affect me tomorrow, right? There's no other movements in American history or world history that has had the longevity of the labor movement. Um, we go back to when's your origin? There's the ancient labor movement in the modern period around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And we have been the ones that have been the, the biggest um, advocates and defenders of democracy. Um, and for that reason, those have wanted to maintain uh, a racialized um, system of capitalism um, have been terrified of unions. And it's not a, 
coincidence that they put forward the most reactionary policies in the South at the very beginnings of the Civil Rights Movement. So those that advocated for this law called right to work, which is a misnomer as most reactionary laws are, uh, it's, it's a right to work without joining the union, okay? That the union would be obligated by law to give you stuff, give you benefits in our contract that we negotiated with you, for you and with you, and that you wouldn't have to contribute to that union, okay? Well, if you're not sympathetic to unions, then what do you care? But the ideal with that is that it would obligate us to represent those folks. And who are those folks? When they were trying to pass right to work, they said that the scourge of unionism, the conspiracy of unionism, the, the, the communist uh, uh, underpinnings of what unions are really about, the insidiousness of the anti-Americanism of unionism, of unions, was that it would allow black and white workers to call each other brothers and sisters. There was something about that that was so terrifying to white elites here in the South at the time. They feared unions because it would be the only secular force out there that can say, only space that you can say to a fellow adult who's not blood related to you, and in particular who may look different than you, that you're my brother or sister and mean that. I mean, outside of church, where else do we do that? And so that form of equality that we show each other, um, to this day, they will villainize it and, and make it seem like it's um, some irrational effort to impede and market forces that otherwise work well. Um, I wouldn't trade what I'm doing for anything, y'all. And as you can see, I'm, I'm somewhat passionate about it. I'm glad to see, uh, you know, y'all here and, and Tina continuing to encourage uh, her students and others to explore how to build social and economic movements. I mean, I've chosen the workplace for the reasons I've listed. You can choose anything else. You don't have to go abroad or anywhere else to organize. You can. It might give you some perspective. But everything that we have to try to make this a better place for all people in the future try to save our planet from human destruction, try to give people a higher standard of living, is right here. It's right on this campus. It's right around the corner. It's in downtown Decatur. Um, and so um, if you want to make that your life's calling, um, you'll have a lot of support and it'll be challenging, but I think it will give you so much more meaning to your life um, and you'll be able to make a difference. Do, do, do.